Hello, everyone. So today we will read from Mark, chapter 11 and 12. As they approached Jerusalem and uh, came to Bethany and uh, Bethpage, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter in, you will find a cold tie there which is no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are doing this, tell him, The Lord needs it, and he will send it back very shortly. They went and found a coat outside the street tied in the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing were asked, What are you doing? Untying that colt. They answered it as Jesus has told to them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Whose who went ahead and whose who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is a who who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in distance as a fig tree and in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached, he found nothing but leaves, because it was uh, the season for it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, "May no one." ever eat from fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money chargers and bench of those who were selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, It's not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it of den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed of his teaching. When um, evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, he saw a big fig tree withered from the roots. Peter, remind, Peter remembered and also said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered, I will tell you the truth. If anyone said to this mountain, go through yourself into the sea and does not double in his head, but believers that he was saying will happen if it will be done for him. Therefore, I will tell you, whatever you will ask for in prayer, believe that you will have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. So how Father in heaven may forgive your sins. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and elders came to him. By what authority you are doing these things? they asked. Who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I was asking you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John baptism, was it from heaven or from man? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and say, if you say, if we say from heaven, he will ask. So why you didn't believe him? But if we say from man, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a, a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. So Jesus said, neither will tell you by the authority I will do in these things. 
He, then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented a vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they sized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him by shameful shamefully he sent still another and that one and the, that one they killed he sent many others some of them were bit some are killed his he had only one once one left to send a son whom he loved he sent him last of all thing they will respect my son but the tenants say to one another this is the, the uh, here come will kill him and the inheritance will be ours so they took him and killed him and threw out from the vineyard. Then, what then will the owners of the vineyard do? He will come and kill host tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you read the scripture? The stone the builders reject has become the cupped stone. The Lord has done this. If it's a marvelous in our eyes, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he has spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later, they sent some of Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him and his word. words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God to accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their, their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look on it. They brought a coin and he asked them, Whose portraits is it? Uh, whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. So then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar's, who is Caesar's, and to God, who is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, uh, who said there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if the man's Brother dies and leaves the wife, but no, with no children. The man must marry the widow and have children for this brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. And it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife she will be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replies, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures of the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither made, marry nor will, be, no, nor will be given in marriage. So they will be like an angels in the heaven. Now about the death raising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus has given them a good answer, he asked him, all the commandments 
from all the commandments, which is the most important. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord of our, the Lord of our God, that the Lord is the one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbors of yourself. There is no commandments greater than this. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right of saying that God is one and there is no other built him but him. He loved him with all, to love him with all our, your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength. And to love your neighbors as yourself is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifice. When Jesus saw that he answered with wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God, and from on one, uh, no one dared ask him of more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple court, he asked, How is that the teachers of the law say that Christ is the son of David? David himself speak to the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I will put my enemies under your feet. David himself called him Lord, how then he could be his son. The large crowd listened to him was delight. And he told Jesus said, watch out of the teachers of the law. They like, the walk, they like to walk around the flowing ropes and be greened in the marketplace and have the most important seats at the synagogues and the place of honor at banquets. They devour widows' house and for show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished more severely. Jesus sat down opposite this, the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowds putting their money into temple treasure. Many rich people threw the large amount, but the poor widow came and put a very small copper coin worth only a fraction of penny. Calling to his disciples to him, Jesus said, I will tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasure than the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything as she had to live on. Um, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. good morning. Well, at least good morning to half the people. Uh, for those of you do, who don't know me, I'm Andes. Um, our usual pastor is uh, on a, a pastor's conference this weekend. Uh, so you've got the reserve bench, unfortunately. Now, to add, uh, add another excuse to the reserve bench comment, uh, I have been on a teacher's conference all weekend, um, uh, which is really good because in Australia, it's uh, been running Latvia time between midnight and uh, 7 a.m. Uh, yesterday and today. So if I do fall asleep, um, I, would, I would appreciate someone kick me really hard or take over. It's all right. It's all written down. Mario's already volunteering. Uh, so so uh, through the power of the spirit, I, I'll hopefully make it all the way through. You know I can't kick you. Yeah, I, I know. I'm, I'm watching. I'm watching. And you know, and, and and being a medical student, you know where it's going to hurt the most. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, it, it was a big passage. So, thank you for uh, Vlada for for making it through there. Um, uh, so, we've got a lot to get through. Uh, so, uh, please put your thinking caps on and uh, and uh, be be strong to make it through. Um, but um, let, let me start by, by saying, I, uh, giving you a childhood memory. Uh, when I was young uh, in Australia, I remember a time when uh, Queen Elizabeth was coming and uh, we were all in our school uniforms and we all went on the street 
and we lined up about an hour before we knew she was going to come. Uh, people were waving little Australian flags, little Union Jacks. Some people were waving their children in hopes that maybe royalty will, will somehow rub off. <laughs> there was ticker tape. So, so Sydney has is lots of skyscrapers and people were throwing ticker tape and it was like, it was like paper snow, uh, not quite as beautiful as snow here, but it was like paper Australian snow. And then she came and she drove past in, in a big black Bentley, you know, doing, doing the royal wave. And then she was gone in the uh, opera house. And you certainly knew that the queen was in town. And in today's passage uh, that Vlada read to us, we see that the king is coming to town. Jesus is finally revealing himself as the king. And what's interesting is Mark highlights some interesting preparation details that you may have missed in the big passage. Firstly, Jesus gets his disciples to pick up a colt, never ridden. And if someone says, why are you taking this colt? They need to say, the Lord needs it, and that he'll send it back shortly. Then he proceeds to ride into Jerusalem under the sounds of Hosanna, meaning God save us. We see Jesus finally revealing who he he is in, in the public. Mark so far has been taking us through and asking us, who is this Jesus? And showing various, uh, various eyewitness accounts, asking this question, who it is? And finally we see him. Second, the other thing is, uh, for us, uh, well, at least for me, it's crazy riding a donkey, isn't it? I mean, it's a stubborn animal and this one has never been ridden. So unless you're a professional rider or actually the Lord, It seems funny that he'd choose a donkey. Also, you may have missed it mentioned that the donkey needed to be spotless. It's just as a required sacrifice and also reflecting the spotlessness of the rider. You could imagine the crowd who would have gone to a Sabbath school and learnt lots of psalms off by heart uh, and chunks of the Bible would have been thinking of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So unlike Western royalty that would come on a big steed or at least a Rolls Royce or Bentley, Jewish kings rode donkeys. This was not wasted on the crowd. And they cry out, David's kingdom is here. Hosanna, save us. And then when Jesus comes in to the temple, we expect it's all going to happen. He comes into the temple and you think, now is the big chance for Jesus. But what he does is he looks around and leaves. It's like, what's happening here? Like, Does Jesus not realise how this story should go? You know, here he is, the crowd's got him. Shouldn't he just come in, take his crown, get rid of the Romans and get everything going? And then Mark gives us another crazy little story, the bit about the fig tree. Let me read from verse 12. So chapter 11, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, 
he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Bertrand Russell, a philosopher and mathematician, used this very story as the one reason why he wasn't Christian. He said it shows Jesus as a furious man, unable to control his anger, not worthy of the supposed son of God. Is this a true assessment of Jesus here? So is Jesus just a donkey whisperer with anger issues? To understand this, let me digress. And what we need to do is we need to pull out our What Plant Is That app and explain something about fig trees. Now, Mark does point out that the fig isn't in season. So why should Jesus expect fruit? Does Jesus have something against figs? Is it a paleo thing? So actually, fact check in our app, there are two kinds of fruit on a fig tree. As the leaves bud on a fig tree, it produces these little nubs or pre-figs. And travellers would often eat these little nubs for energy. So despite the fact that uh, it wasn't in season, the leaves show us that there should have been these little nubs. There should have been some fruit, but there weren't even those. Our plant app would, would highlight that this tree is actually dead. Despite appearances being green on the outside, what we see is that on the inside, the tree is dead. Keep that thought in mind. So what else in these two chapters looks like it's working but is also dead and empty inside, not bearing fruit, not doing what it was intended to do? That's right, we come back to the weird bit from before. Jesus entered the temple to bring the temple, which was designed to bring Jews and all the nations to God. But it wasn't bearing fruit, was it? Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. Jesus is now clearing out his father's house. He is judging the temple with scripture. Verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. The temple is green on the outside, but not on the inside. Jesus came to clean out what was God's. The British pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, every institution tends to become its opposite. The temple became a place where it was hard to find God. Martin Jones's quote also gives us pause to think. If Jesus came to Grace International, what would he want to clean out here? What do we do in our church that might make it hard for people to come to Jesus or come to the gospel? But on a personal level, what would happen if Jesus actually came to clean out our own hearts? What kind of spring cleaning would he do in our own hearts? Now, the guys that taught the Bible in Israel, who've memorised large chunks of, of scripture, they could have humbly taken Jesus' rebuke, the rebuke from the king, 
but instead they decide to kill him. How would you respond to Jesus' spring cleaning in your heart? Verse 20. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes what they, uh, what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sin. We see the judgment on the fig tree reflects the judgment that will come on the temple and on the religious institution. We should also hear this echo and warning. Are we bearing fruit for the kingdom? Which takes us to a highly misquoted passage. As long as you have faith, you can just ask for anything, like even something as silly as mountain, move away and it will move, as long as you have faith. However, let's think about the context for a moment. We saw the green fig tree, which was not producing fruit, and Jesus' judgment on the religious elite in the temple. Now again, think about where the fig tree was. It was on the way to the temple. So the passage is not saying that we can say to any mountain. The passage is saying when you say to this mountain, the mountain with the temple on it. So what do we need faith in? We need faith in Jesus, the new temple, which was destroyed, rebuilt in three days and brought us as adopted children to the Father, a Father who forgives everything. So we need, no longer need the actual temple because Jesus is now the temple. He is the one that brings us to our Heavenly Father. Jesus is the one that paid the price so that we may also forgive. Unlike the temple inside, Jesus even in his death, brought fruit. And when someone calls you something you think you're not, remember, if you're honest, you're actually worse. And God's forgiven you for all of that. So show the same grace that God has shown you. Show the same sacrifice Jesus showed you on the, uh, on the cross and forgive others. Jesus said, don't let it fester. Forgive others now. So ironically, as a direct contrast to Jesus calling us to forgiveness and not holding anything against anyone, comes a series of challenges to Jesus. Yet Jesus always gets to the heart or the root of the problem. Verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? 
The first attack in our section is on Jesus' authority. Who does Jesus think he is shaking up the temple like that? But as as usual, Jesus turns the argument around like a mirror. What authority did John the Baptist have? The teachers in the law have now fallen in their own trap. If they say from God, the crowd will follow Jesus. If they say from man, the crowd will turn on them. They avoid the answer. Interestingly, Mark doesn't comment on what they actually believe. It seems the ones who actually should recognise who Jesus is are missing him. I was recently reading on Quora, I'm sorry, I'm an addict, uh, I'm Andre, I'm an addict to Quora, about the original Mars Explorer. And the problem with the original Mars Explorer is that some of the um, uh, calculations to take it to Mars were in imperial measurements, and some of them were metric. Uh, Now, there were a couple of scientists that realised that both metric and imperial were being used in the same calculations, and they, and they put, this, uh, put this down, um, put the criticism down. But they didn't use the proper form. So it was ignored and the first Mars explorer shot way past Mars and missed it. You see, sometimes we can avoid the truth for a ridiculous reason. So why did the, the teachers uh, of the law miss the real Jesus? Probably the same reason that many people in society now miss the real Jesus. Maybe it's pride. I know better. Maybe we're scared of what other people think. I know Jesus is not really a crutch in my life. I just go along for the social aspect. Maybe it's a need for power or money. And, you know, Jesus would want me to be happy to to have all that stuff. Maybe it's a desire of love or family. Does the Bible really say it's wrong to marry a non-Christian? What stops you from seeking the real Jesus in your life? Where do you make excuses in your life? What would Jesus say is your heart issue? Jesus yet is loving to the Pharisees. He's loving to us. He keeps giving them a chance to acknowledge who he is. So he tells them a cutting parable, which is also answers the previous question about where does his authority come from? Chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in a parable. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. The landlord takes care of the property and shelters those who live in it from the outside forces. But when he sees his workers are being mistreated, finally he sends his own son, who is killed and thrown out of the vineyard. Verse 12, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. The tenant's fault is not just the lack of producing grapes, like the fig tree which was not producing dates, but the horrific treatment of workers and the owner's own son. The chief priests understand that the parable is about them. They can see that Jesus is claiming to be the heir, 
that Jesus is claiming that he has God's authority. But rather than coming to Jesus broken and contrite, rather than seeking forgiveness, they seek to arrest him and actually fulfill the prophecy. Do you ever feel this choice in your own life? Either you can become more stubborn and cherish a certain sin, or you can admit failure and come to Jesus for grace. Sadly, the chief priests, rather than fearing the creator, they fear the crowd. Next come the Pharisees and the Herodians to try to trick Jesus about his political affiliation. Now, the Pharisees and Herodians are like the Jews and the Nazis. So if you have these total opposites coming together, you know they really want to fight for something. Verse 14, they come to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They flatter Jesus, but it's obvious to us, and Jesus has even spotted it before it leaves their mouths. It's a reminder for us in the days of social networking not to worry about what others say about you. Charles Spurgeon said to his pastors, It is always best not to know nor wish to know what is being said about you, either by friends or foes. Those who praise us probably are as much mistaken as those who abuse us. A good reminder when we care about how many thumbs up or likes we get. We can, and we can feel sometimes the weight of a rude comment from someone we don't actually know. But I digress. Back to the taxes. So since the 6 AD, uh, the Jews were forced to pay taxes to the Roman Empire. They paid a ground tax of 10% and 20% for fruit and wine and an income tax of 1%. And then there was a poll tax of one denarius a year, which is roughly the, a day's uh, wages for a labourer. Now, most in Israel begrudgingly paid this tax, except for the zealots who refused. But another trap is set. Do we pay the occupying forces or do we resist them? Like always, Jesus sees past the trap and tries to get to the heart of the matter. A couple of years ago when we were in Rome, I actually brought a, bought a replica of a denarius uh, in the hope that it would make a really good sermon illustration. Unfortunately, it's sitting in Australia, but let me describe the coin to you instead. So around Caesar's head on the coin is written um, the abbreviation for Tiberius Caesar, the divine Augustus. On the back, we have Pontifex Maximus declaring Caesar as the high priest of the Roman Empire. As always, pardon the pun, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. What do we see on the coin? We see a self-proclaimed God and saviour. Give him what's his, the little idol in your hands. But what belongs to God? 
God should have our heart and our mind. Give him what belongs to him. So the Pharisees and Herodians are amazed, although it doesn't stop them from actually later in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, lying and misquoting Jesus and saying that Jesus explicitly forbade paying taxes. One commentator summarized this section beautifully. In the answer of Jesus, God was glorified, Caesar was satisfied, the people were edified, and his critics were stupefied. So next come the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels and only used the first five books of the Bible. They saw God as a passive watchmaker who set up the watch and now lets it all go. They are testing uh, Jesus based on their understanding of the scripture. So they come up with a silly question in the realm of, can God actually create a rock too heavy for him to lift? uh, Verse 19, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving in children, and so on and so on. So the Sadducees are really asking about the resurrection, which they think is laughable. Now, in Deuteronomy 25, uh, verses 5 to 6, we actually read about what's called the Leverite marriage. And so this is marrying your brother-in-law so that there's actually an heir for the brother-in-law and so that the, uh, the land can actually stay in the family. So the Sadducees, But the Sadducees actually believe that when the body dies, so does the soul. And they come up with this ridiculous scenario. But Jesus, again, is straight to the point. He points out their main error. They are minimizing scripture or minimizing God's power. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Next, Jesus explains the reality, taking their stupid question seriously and using it to teach them that heaven is not just a glorified earth, just a little bit better. Verse 25, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Finally, Jesus shows their true error based on the first five books that they actually believe in. Verse 26. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus took a silly question seriously, turned it around, and got to the heart of the matter. Mic drop. Unfortunately, we too can sometimes rationalize our sin in this way. I remember talking to a woman once who was leaving her husband because she loved another man. And she said, God is the God of love, and I love this other guy, and so it must be from God because that's what God would want. What she needed to understand was that she was minimizing scripture and simplifying God's sovereignty. She needed to hear the truth that God values marriage and hates divorce. 
And she needed to understand that the Bible says to stay true to her husband and not be yoked to an unbeliever. Sadly, her marriage ended, she left her family, and soon after she left the church. Next comes a teacher of the law with an attitude that he has it all under control. And only after noticing Jesus had answered well to the other people does he bother to test Jesus now. Verse 28, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which one is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus answers the man patiently. The larger irony is that the man is actually testing Jesus, who is fully God as well as fully man. And the teacher of the law is actually patronizing Jesus by telling telling him, well done, Jesus, you've come up with a good answer. However, there's a slight challenge in Jesus' answer. You are not far from the kingdom of God. The teacher of the law probably heard this and thought, Oh, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I, I, I'm, I'm doing all the right things. I'm, I'm following the rules. But Jesus is actually pointing to himself. Jesus is saying this guy is actually standing right next to Jesus. Physically, he's not far from the kingdom of God. Physically, he's not far from the cornerstone. So after acknowledging himself as the kingdom of God, Jesus keeps answering the original question, where does his earthly authority come from? From his adopted great, 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 great grandfather David, who he quotes, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In verse 37, David himself calls Lord. How then can this be his son? So in Sunday school, sometimes you learn things which later make a whole lot more sense. A simple Psalm 110 that Roberts read for us at the beginning of the service has a strong meaning and implication here. Something that the Jewish kids would have probably been learning and memorizing. The Lord said to my Lord. That is the Lord, in capitals in Psalm 10, refers to Yahweh, God the Father. Says to my Lord, that is David's Lord. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. But wait a second, how can David's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson be greater than David himself. Now, in a culture that respects its elders and respects the people that have gone before him, it's unthinkable unless that person is actually the Messiah, the Christ, who will rule with God the Father 
over everything and everyone. And as the psalm says, who will one day come back and judge the living and the dead. There he is, right there in front of them, right there in front of us. You see, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees and the teachers of the law are all asking about Jesus' authority and questioning his understanding of Scripture. Now, Jesus is actually answering where his authority comes from. It comes from God, his Father. It comes from Scripture. It comes from David, his forebear. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the one who forgives all sins, who brings us into relationship with God, who will come one day to judge the living and the dead. It's interesting that the title most often used in the epistles, that's the letters at the end of the, end of the New Testament, is Lord for Jesus. He is your Lord. He is our Lord who wants our heart, not just our lip service. He's not just a manager that it's nice to have a beer with after work, but he is our Lord and Master. So just to finally drive the point home, Jesus, after patiently listening to the groups who should have actually recognised him, who should be actually uh, worshipping him, gives us this last section of today. Verse 38, as he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. These men are about themselves. They wear priestly garments, have a good salary package. They like to be greeted with terms such as most reverend, most holy, most honoured, father or priest. They like the bells and the smells and their sandstone church buildings. They like the acoustics. They like the rings. They like the garb. But where does their wealth come from? It comes from taking God's money and the love of God from those that have nothing. Verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where their offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all she had to live on. Jesus contrasts the heart of the rich people to draw attention to themselves and allow the widow to give up all of her money with the heart of the widow who is prepared to give everything she has to her king. In these two chapters that we've looked at today, Mark is again turning the mirror on us. Who is Jesus in your life? 
Is he your Lord? Or is he just a good friend that gives you a pick-me-up now and then? Does he rule your life? Do you love God with all your heart? Do you find joy in God? Or do you question him every step of the way? What? Jesus give you everything? Like surely the Bible is exaggerating to make a point. Look, I come two to three Sundays a month. I even go to Bible study once in a while. I'll even pick up a Bible now and then and read some random stuff when I'm feeling a little bit sad. Is Jesus your Lord? The Lord who sits at God's right hand because the saving work is all done and finished. Do you give Jesus everything like the poor widow? Do you give him your time? Are you generous with your money? Or are you like the Pharisees who just give a little bit out of their wealth? And are you proud of that? Or even worse, are you part of the religious elite who fleece the poor of all they have in the name of religion? Do you love your neighbour and your fellow believers? Do you go out of your way to catch up with people in church, though you might be tired and worn out from work or studies? Do you serve at the church and in other ministries? Do you help clean up, do the dishes, bring along food, volunteer with the kids and love others in your congregation? Or do you just see all these things that the church doesn't give you? Who is Jesus in your life? Jesus is patient, listening to excuses. He carries all the authority of the Father for he is the Son he desires our heart and our fruit and brings us to scripture. Jesus gave his life for you. Like the widow, he gave everything for you so that you can be right with God. And sometimes we can't even get out of bed. But one day God's patience will end. Jesus will come back with an iron scepter as in Mark and Psalm 110. Mark today warns us by showing us more about who Jesus actually is. He is the rightful king of all. Don't be asleep when he returns. Look up. He's not far from you. Jesus is our rightful Lord and Saviour. Let me pray. Father God, may we live our lives to our Lord, our Saviour and our King, Jesus. Reveal to us by your Spirit what we need to work on in our own hearts, that we may live for your glory and bear fruit for your kingdom. Open our eyes to who Jesus really is, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.